This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Ukrainian forces dug in while Russia's military lined up more firepower and tapped an experienced general to take centralized control of the war. The next phase of the battle is expected to be a showdown in eastern Ukraine. The outcome could determine the course of the conflict, which has flattened cities and killed untold thousands of people. Questions remain about the ability of Russia's depleted and demoralized forces to conquer much ground after their advance on the capital, Kiev, was repelled by determined Ukrainian defenders. Britain's defense ministry reported Sunday that the Russian forces are trying to compensate for mounting casualties by recalling veterans discharged in the past decade. And again, Russia has in fact tapped the new Ukraine war commander to take centralized control of the next phase of the battle after a costly uh, failures in the opening campaign and carnage for Ukrainian civilians. U.S. officials do not see one man making a difference in Moscow's prospects. Russia turned to the uh, General Alexander Dvornikov, who is 60, one of Russia's most experienced military officers. And according to U.S. officials, a general with a record of brutality against civilians in Syria and other war theaters. Uh, But until now, Russia had uh, no central war commander on the ground. The general's appointment was confirmed by a senior U.S. official who was not authorized to be identified and spoke on condition of anonymity. The White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said no appointment of any general can erase the fact that Russia has already faced a strategic failure in Ukraine. There is more at VOANews.com. Again, VOANews.com. This is VOA News. U.S. President Joe Biden and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi are set to speak virtually on Monday. Uh, This as Biden presses world leaders to take a hard line against Russia's Ukraine invasion. India's neutral stance in the war has raised concerns in Washington, and it's earned praise from Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who allowed India for judging the situation in its entirety, not just uh, in one one side of way. Most recently, India abstained when the U.N. General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from its seat on the 47-member Human Rights Council. Incumbent Emmanuel Macron will face far-right nationalist Marine Le Pen in a winner-take-all runoff for the French presidency after they both advanced Sunday in the first round of voting in the country's election to set up another head-to-head clash the sharply opposing visions for France. Uh, but while Macron won uh, the uh, last contest in 2017 by a landslide to become France's youngest ever president, the same outcome this time is far from guaranteed. Macron, now 44, emerged ahead from Sunday's first round, but the runoff is essentially a new election, and the next two weeks of campaigning to the April 24th second round vote promised to be uh, bruising and confrontational against his 53-year-old political nemesis. The ouster of Prime Minister Imran Khan in a parliamentary no-confidence vote has set Pakistan on an uncertain political path. Tens of thousands of Khan supporters marched in cities across Pakistan on Sunday, waving large party flags and vowing support while the political opposition is preparing to install his replacement on Monday. 
And the leading contender is uh, Shabazz Sharif, a brother of disgraced former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. Uh, Khan's ouster comes amid his cooling relations with the powerful military. The opposition has charged Khan's government with economic mismanagement. Khan has claimed the U.S. worked behind the scenes to bring him down purportedly because of Washington's displeasure over growing ties to Russia and China. Recapping our top story, Ukrainian forces have been digging in while Russia's military lined up more firepower. They also tapped an experienced general to take centralized control of the war. The next phase of the battle now is expected to be a showdown in eastern Ukraine. The outcome could determine the course of the conflict. There is more at VOANews.com via remotes. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Monday, April 11th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo Afoy in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. pledges more weapons to Ukraine as Kyiv prepares for a new Russian offensive. In the meantime, though, we're not going to wait for that. We are going to get Ukraine the weapons it needs to beat back the Russians, to stop them from taking more cities and towns where they commit these crimes. Pakistan prepares for a new prime minister following the ouster of Imran Khan by parliament. Shabazz Sharif, who is known for being a good administrator, when he was the chief minister of Pakistan's most populous province of Punjab for almost 15 years. And French President Emmanuel Macron and far-right rival Marine Le Pen advanced to a presidential runoff on April 24th. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on Sunday that the United States is committed to providing Ukraine with, in his words, quote, the weapon it needs, unquote, to defend itself against Russia. This as Ukraine seeks more military aid from the West as it prepares for another Russian offensive in the East. Sullivan said the Biden administration will send more weapons to Ukraine to prevent Russia from seizing more territory and targeting civilians, attacks that Washington has labeled war crimes. Moscow has rejected accusations of war crimes by Ukraine and Western countries. The bottom line is this, there must be accountability. And the United States will work with the international community to make sure there's accountability. In the meantime, though, we're not gonna wait for that. We are going to get Ukraine the weapons it needs to beat back the Russians, to stop them from taking more cities and towns where they commit these crimes, and also to squeeze the Russian economy to increase the pressure and the costs on Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin and the Russian uh, government. That's what we're going to do, and uh, we intend to work in lockstep with our allies and partners in support of the Ukrainians as they defend their country. That's U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. United Nations Humanitarian Chief Martin Griffiths is calling for localized ceasefires in war-torn Ukraine to allow humanitarian aid into areas under siege and to allow trapped civilians to leave. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The UN's Martin Griffiths this week discussed a possible humanitarian ceasefire in Ukraine with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Griffiths, the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, stopped in Moscow Monday on his way to Ukraine. 
He did not obtain a commitment for a ceasefire, but UN humanitarian spokesman Jens Leerke said Friday that Griffiths views the meeting as only a first step in what is likely to be a long process. Meanwhile, he says Griffiths considers it of utmost importance to get the warring parties to agree to localized ceasefires. He said top priority of that is to get the silencing of the guns in those cities, with Mariupol being the worst affected, those cities where civilians are trapped, to allow uh, them uh, to, uh, uh, to get to safety voluntarily to a place of their choosing and to allow aid uh, to get in. Hundreds of thousands of inhabitants of Mariupol have been under siege since Russia invaded Ukraine more than six weeks ago. They've been forced to hide in underground bunkers while their city was being turned into rubble by Russian bombers. Lyerke says during his visit to Ukraine, Griffiths witnessed firsthand the scenes of death and destruction in the towns of Bucha and Irpin on the outskirts of the capital, Kiev. He says Griffiths, who saw a mass grave and dozens of destroyed building blocks in Bucha, described the sites as horrifying and called for an investigation into the atrocities allegedly committed by Russian forces. Russian troops have failed to win control of the capital, Kyiv, and have retreated. They've shifted their focus toward capturing the Donbas region in eastern Ukraine. Leerke says UN officials hope the situation of Mariupol will not be repeated as fighting moves toward Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, people are still hunkered down in basements um, in Luhansk uh, and Donetsk. We have in our planning... Uh, convoys to go there, um, I understand already next week. Everything, again, whether that happens or not, depends on the security situation. But it is it, it will be ready to go there if we can get in. Layerke says emergency relief coordinator Griffiths is very worried about what might happen in the Russian-speaking regions in eastern Ukraine. Since leaving Ukraine, Griffiths has told media he is not optimistic about a ceasefire. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A new Pakistani prime minister is expected to imagine Monday following the ouster of Imran Khan by a no-confidence vote in parliament. Khan earlier accused the United States of backing moves to oust him because he had visited Moscow for talks with President Vladimir Putin just after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. Washington rejected the charge. Opposition leader Shabazz Sharif is the front-runner to lead the nuclear-armed country of over 200 million people. For more on the mood of the country ahead of the choice for a new leader, I spoke with VOA's Ayaz Gal. Tens of thousands of people have taken to the street across major Pakistani cities, including capital Islamabad, in support of the deposed Prime Minister Imran Khan, which is basically an expression of anger and disapproval of whatever happened in the parliament where Imran Khan was voted out by the majority of lawmakers led by the opposition. Everyone expects the opposition leader, Sharif Shabazz, to emerge as the new prime minister. Who is he? What are his likely policies? Well, he is obviously Sharif family in Pakistan, which has been in, you know, one way or the other ruling Pakistan. Uh, Shahbaz Sharif's elder brother, Nawaz Sharif, who was elected prime minister of Pakistan thrice, although currently he is living in self-exile in London. But Shahbaz Sharif, the younger brother who is 
known for being a good administrator when he was the chief minister of Pakistan's most populous province of Punjab for almost 15 years in a row until Imran Khan party defeated them in the last election. So Shabaz Sharif is known as having better ties or working relationship with the Pakistani military, the most powerful institution in the country, because any political government, elected government, has to maintain a friendly ties with the military and not to upset them over security and foreign policies to continue ruling the country. So Shabaz Sharif is good at maintaining those ties. And those are the ties that were good between Imran Khan, the post prime minister and the military until a few months ago but because Imran Khan lost that support so that is also considered one of the factors for his departure from the office of prime minister and Shahbaz Sharif during his stint as the chief minister of Punjab you know is known for initiating and completing major infrastructure projects but at the same time this is the Pakistani politician who also faced accusations of corruption during his stint in Punjab province and it is coincident that Monday when he is going to be elected as the prime minister and he will be taking oath of office, that is the day when he was supposed to be indicted by a court in a money laundering case. And what kind of support does he have among the population? Whatever we're seeing on the streets in Pakistan, in support of Imran Khan, you see tens of thousands of people taken to the streets. But yesterday, when Imran Khan was defeated by Shahbaz Sharif-led opposition no-confidence vote, we did not see any major celebrations in Pakistan. I mean, Shahbaz Sharif's party, Pakistan Muslim League Noon, is quite a big party in Punjab province. But everybody was expecting that the streets in, especially Punjab province in Lahore, will be flooded by supporters of this party. But we haven't seen those kind of celebrations. What is the fate of former Prime Minister Khan? You know, he wanted to serve his five years due to be completed next year, but it was cut short because of this no-confidence vote against him. And obviously, he was also under criticism for not being able to address the economic challenges, particularly facing Pakistan. Uh, so we know that there's a tradition in Pakistan that opposition parties, whenever they come to power, they try to fix score with the predecessors. So whether we are going to see the same practice, which most people believe it's going to be the case, Imran Khan is going to face quite a challenging time because the kind of corruption cases that his government was highlighting during their three and a half year period in power, we may see institution of corruption cases against Imran Khan and other such activities to keep him under pressure. So the kind of popularity we're seeing on the streets shows that this man is going to put pressure on the government, not only out on the street, but Imran Khan's political party remains the single largest political force inside the parliament, even after defections. That's VOS Ayaz Gao speaking with me from Islamabad. The International Rescue Committee says that the humanitarian situation inside Syria is fragile and has been further compounded by the global COVID-19 pandemic and the sharp economic downturn. The economic crisis in Syria is likely to deepen in 2022 and exacerbate food insecurity for millions. Andrew Tabler is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he focuses on Syria, the Levant and the U.S. Middle East policy. Reporter Andrew Omar asked him how the international community could help save Syrians. 
the international community can help save Syrians by getting more humanitarian aid into opposition-controlled areas and also into regime-controlled areas that are not controlled and manipulated by the Assad regime. That's the best way to help Syrians, and we're going to have a showdown at the Security Council in July, and ahead of that, a deep negotiation with the Russians, who the United States no longer has good relations with because of the Ukraine crisis. The average price of essential food items increased by 236% between December 2019 and December 2020, while the Syrian pound has lost 82% of its value against the dollar. 60% of Syrians are now facing food insecurity. Thousands of Syrians are now forced to adopt negative coping mechanism that include child labor and child marriage. What options do Syrians have to overcome this crisis? Syrians have increasingly few options to overcome the economic depravity inside of their country. Syria does produce wheat and other raw materials, but it imports a number of goods. So particularly medicines and other imported goods are expensive and not and those that are not produced by Syrian pharmaceutical factories. Syrians, though, uh, largely don't like the Assad regime's policies and desire reforms and other kind of changes in line with Security Council Resolution 2254. But they're every day lives are being affected by the crisis. So the United States and its allies need to find ways to get this aid inside of Syria and to find ways for Syrians who are civilian and outside regime circles to benefit from these kind of shipments and to not be punished by the sanctions that are placed upon the country. In July 2014, the U.S. Security Council authorized U.N. cross-border operations to bring aid from neighboring countries into Syria. Since 2020, the Council has reduced the number of permitted crossings from four to one, despite rising needs, particularly in areas outside government control. How could the end of aid crossing to Syria jeopardize the humanitarian response? The problem about the end of cross-border aid is the scale, that the United Nations is able to deliver aid into Syria in large scale, going around other restrictions such as sanctions. If that is no longer there, the scale is not there. The donors are unable to meet that response, and it's going to be very hard to fill that gap. But there are chances at Plan B. There is another way to get aid into those areas, but it's going to be complicated. The United States needs to prepare for that now, cause another renewal of the cross-border legislation and support for another Security Council resolution is unlikely particularly from the Russian side. That's Andrew Tebler, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, speaking with reporter Andrew Ma in Cairo. In other news, French polling agency projections show President Emmanuel Macron and far-right rival Marine Le Pen advancing to a presidential runoff on April 24th with strong echoes of their last face-off in the 2017 election. The projections show Macron with a comfortable first-round lead Sunday of between 27% to 29% support ahead of Le Pen, who is expected to capture 23% to 24% of the vote. But the second round is likely to be tight. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Empowering women and girls is an essential tool for advancing development and reducing poverty, especially in Africa. Today, some organizations, mostly non-profits founded by women, are helping them gain economic independence. From Abuja, Nigeria, reporter Munachi Chooks, look at some remarkable women working to empower future generations. There is no doubt that empowered women contributes to the health and productivity of a family, community, and nation. 
Development specialists say equipping women and girls with the knowledge, skills and habits to help national development should be the priority of every society. There are a number of strong and competent women changing the game for women and girls with support and encouragement. Aderonke Ogunleye Bello is executive director of a group called FAME or Female Advocacy Mentoring and Empowerment. She says her foundation is committed to addressing gender disparities and creating job opportunities for women. The passion to improve the appalling situation of women and girls, especially those in underserved and underprivileged or hard to reach communities, vulnerable women and those living with disabilities, inspired me to start up a gender-based, not-for-profit organization. Bello's group, Fame, works to boost the self-esteem of girls and women by motivating them to take part in sports and to improve the education, particularly in STEM, science, technology, engineering and medicine. She says the foundation is committed to changing lives despite the difficulties of standing against established social and cultural stereotypes that limit women's access to careers, good-paying jobs and reproductive health care. Regardless of these challenges, we are proud of what we have achieved and pledge to remain relentless towards promoting equality and achieving emancipation for women in all spheres of life. Jumai Amadu is the founder of Helpline Foundation for the Needy. Established in 2003, the group focuses on putting smiles on the faces of the vulnerable people through skills acquisition programs. Helpline has trained over 16,000 women to make soaps, detergents, disinfectants, body creams, and confectionaries. It also offers training in self-care, public speaking and has provided free hospital checks and has helped over 600 women improve their savings and efforts to reverse what the group calls the financial slavery that traps many women. I have a success story during the Just Complaints International Women's Day where these women brought all what they have been producing and we had a mini sales for them. They were all happy to see that people appreciated what they have produced and they made some money on that day. Another non-governmental organization that has been making positive changes in the lives of women and the less privileged is the Ningin Hope Alive Foundation. Dame Tumini Akogu is president and founder of the group, which helps pay high school fees so girls can complete their education. She says supporting the foundation with her personal and family funds is not easy, and she's called on generous individuals and organizations to help support training the less privileged. She notes that the group makes an effort to reach women living in displaced communities and areas affected by insecurity. Ningim has trained several girls and equipped them with tools to practice what they learned. We have also equipped some widows with some machines and tools to enable them fend for themselves. We have been sponsoring some indigent students. We give food and clothing materials to the needy. Through the support of these non-governmental organizations, many women and girls in Nigeria have been able to rewrite their stories for the better. For VOA News, Munachi Chooks in Abuja. 
Millions of people in the Sahel and West Africa are facing the worst food crisis in a decade as conflict and climate disasters send the price of essential commodities soaring. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The World Food Program says the region is facing an unprecedented food crisis. It reports the number of hungry people across West Africa and the Sahel has quadrupled to 41 million between 2019 and 2022. This includes 16 million urban poor at risk of acute food insecurity, with many already surviving on a starvation diet. Sibolo is WFP senior research assessment and monitoring advisor for West and Central Africa. Speaking from the Senegalese capital, Dakar, he says 6 million children in the Sahel are suffering from malnutrition and that undernutrition is a general problem throughout the region. The economy is recovering from the COVID impact, but still very slowly. Last year, the agricultural season was extremely bad and millions of farmers have lost their production and many of them will not have enough food that will last until the next lean season or even the next harvest season. He says conflict has displaced more than 6 million people in the Sahel and border closures also are causing food price hikes. He says this all is adding to the hunger crisis. The farmers in particular, they are worried for the next agricultural season, mainly because they, many of them will not be able to access to fertilizers. The, the cost of fertilizers has increased by almost 30% in many places of this region due to the supply disruption that we see provoked by the crisis in, in Ukraine. The United Nations reports the conflict in Ukraine is disrupting the global trade of food, fertilizers, and oil products. It says shortages of these commodities are driving up food and fuel prices across the globe. Olo says WFP needs $777 million to provide life-saving humanitarian assistance for 22 million people in the Sahel in Nigeria over the next six months. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. International Edition on The Voice of America on behalf of the entire production team. Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com. Until next time, I am Chine Dwarf in Washington wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On March 29th, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, launched the 2022 Joint Response Plan for the Rohingya Humanitarian Crisis. The United Nations seeks more than $881 million in donations to support some 1.4 million Rohingya refugees living in camps in eastern Bangladesh. U.S. Ambassador to Bangladesh Peter 
Haas, announced on March 29th that the United States would deliver $152 million in additional humanitarian assistance for those in Bangladesh, Burma, and elsewhere in the region affected by the Burmese military's genocide, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing of Burma's Rohingya minority, said State Department spokesperson Ned Price in a written statement. Since August 2017, when over 740,000 Rohingya were forced to flee to safety in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, the United States has responded with over $1.7 billion in assistance, including the recently announced $152 million tranche. More than $125 million of this latest sum is earmarked for programs specifically in Bangladesh. Some of the money will help our humanitarian partners provide life-saving assistance to the over 920,000 Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. It will also provide support to more than 540,000 members of the local host community in Bangladesh who are affected by the crisis. Some of the funding will go toward providing families with food, health care, access to clean water and sanitation to prevent the spread of disease. It will support the protection of Rohingya refugees' human rights and well-being, help strengthen disaster preparedness, and help combat the effects of climate change. Likewise, we understand that education and income-generating activities are among the most effective methods to create safer refugee camps in Bangladesh. This is just one of the reasons why some of the funding will go toward ensuring that children and young adults have access to education and vocational training. The United States recognizes that Bangladesh and its people have taken on an enormous responsibility in hosting refugees, said spokesperson Price. We are working with the government of Bangladesh, Rohingya, and people within Burma toward finding solutions to this crisis, including the safe, voluntary, dignified, and sustainable return and reintegration of Rohingya refugees and internally displaced persons when conditions in Burma allow. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, bam, it.